Everybody, welcome to the 18th episode of the Future Worlds Metaverse podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We're joined by Peter Chaudy, who is an attorney, entrepreneur, advisor, serial creator. Serial something. Serial, I was going to say something else. Um, but Peter's very knowledgeable in not only the NFT space and the Web3 and the, and the metaverse space, but also in music rights, film rights, a lot of the entertainment media space. He's been a journalist, blogger, advisor, attorney, business affairs executive. I, I guess I could go on. He'll probably go further, but um, welcome well, to the I, show, Peter. Thank you so that, much. I, for think we're, I think we're done, you know? <laughs> uh, listen, I, uh, yes, I, I appreciate it, Steve. I, I'm, I enjoy getting involved in a lot of different things because it's all fascinating. It is, and you've had a wealth of experience. Um, I've known Peter for maybe five years now, and we just go back and forth. Um, we exchange communications every once in a while and we see each other every once in a while, but um, I do get your newsletter, which is, it's kind of a legal brief on NFTs mostly, but, but text-based stuff, which is really interesting because no one else really publishes anything like that that I've seen. Yeah. And you, you go deeper than just the headlines. So you kind of dig in a little bit and, and chat about your opinion, but also, you know, what's happening with these cases as they proceed and as they start out. So, um, I, I mean, I guess that's pretty much your background. You want to add anything to that? We'll, get, we'll jump in. Yeah, look, um, when I look back at my career and look forward at my career, uh, it's been the most fascinating part of it is that I've covered a lot of ground in different areas of the media and entertainment and tech world. And so I've, I, you know, as an entertainment attorney, as a business executive at the major studios, as a serial entrepreneur, like you said, as an advisor, board member, et cetera, and as a kind of a journalist, like you said, so I, I've come across great people like you who I think are doing really innovative things. And that's what I like to involve my time with. Just one small note on that NFT newsletter, because I'm a lawyer by trade also, and I, I work with my clients as a lawyer frequently, um, I was looking for a place that talked about all the cases out there because the, the Web3 space and NFT space is moving so fast that it's critical for everybody, not just lawyers, but for everybody who are in and around Web3 to track all those things because those cases are establishing the rules of the game, the guardrails on what is permissible, what isn't. And so it, it helps define it. I created that newsletter because none of it existed that I could find. Um, and then what just, and that's called the NFT legal update, but I also now cover AI cases. So like major developments in AI, because again, in the legal side, there's so much happening now in AI, which everybody needs to know about, not just lawyers. That's going to be a major, I mean, it is, it's, it's, I see it every day. I think about it every day, but the, the, the depths to which we're going to see litigation and challenges and claims, um, you know, when you're scraping someone's copyrighted data, right. And using it, you know, is, is, does it, we'll, we'll, we'll chat about that in a second. So, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, good stuff on that. I would just say, um, we had a conference back in November called future worlds in LA and one of the attorneys on the IP panel brought up a very good point. And he said, I've done a little research and I can't find a single attorney that's drafted a smart contract. So it's, to your point, most of these smart contracts are being baked in by software engineers or developers that have zero IP experience as a, as a legal advisor or, or, a, or a, an attorney, I should say. And some of these things are immutable. They're being put into these NFTs that people are buying, selling, and trading, and they're not even vetted by anyone on the legal side. What do you think oh, about that? Absolutely. Look, you know, I'm working with uh, several different Web3 NFT companies right now, uh, both on the business development side, but as a lawyer pre predominantly. And so I'm seeing what is out there. And we, we look at kind of, you try to find as a business you, in a new space, and always you try to find what are best practices what the leading companies are doing, those that are more, most proven, and then emulate what they're doing. So learn from what they've learned. And you see that because it's such a nascent space, like you said, Steve, that it's all over the map. There, is, there aren't standardized templates for these kinds of things. And so that's part of what I do is working, whether it's on smart contracts with my clients, helping establish that, but like things like terms of service, 
which sounds very basic. Privacy policies, when you're talking about NFTs, terms of service, things like this, there are no, there is no one standard template. And you got to think about these things very deeply because there's issues when, of course, it comes to privacy and, and age for those who are buying. And, um, and then there's, here's a fundamental issue. NFTs are typically global opportunities, right? You place your NFT, you make it available to the world. But if you think it's difficult enough to understand the landscape here in the United States, there are over 200 territories in the world and there, every single jurisdiction has different rules of the game that they're developing themselves. So you have to do a risk assessment as a business of, okay, where are my primary territories? What should I focus on? You know, all that kind of stuff. And so it truly is like any new technology, we are making up the rules of the game as we speak. So do you, I mean, obviously the, the regulation follows technology, but how long of a lag do you think there might be before there is some guidelines or regulations that standardize, like you said, give us reference points as to, hey, those are terms of service, those are valid. That's gonna become you know, generalized terms for anybody that's transacting these. It's, is this a year out, three years out, 10 years out? What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's certainly when it comes to NFT regulation and the fundamental question of what kind of NFTs constitute securities, which is a big issue as everybody knows. Like there's, um, I think it's uh, Yuga right now that has its, um, its, its NFTs that were the you know, top shot cards and whether those are considered to be securities or not. Like that, and they weren't sold as security, they were sold as trading cards essentially, but the value went way up and then they crashed. And so you, you can imagine whenever there's, when there's um, frustration by a market, that's when conflict happens. And so now there's this fundamental issue of what constitutes a security and whether those trading cards, those top shots were security as an example. Those kind of conclusions are going to begin happening this year. For sure, like the FTC is looking at it, um, the S SEC is looking at it, things like that. Then, when it comes to, um, um, you know, you have cases like um, uh, copyright infringement. Uh, you know, there's a major case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court with Andy Warhol that's going to have very substantial implications on the NFT marketplace and what constitutes a fair use. I'm not going to get into the weeds about it, but. The point is, guys, everybody who's listening, these aren't just legal things. This is what everybody, the creator needs to know, the business person needs to know, the entrepreneur, the, the customer who's buying needs to know what they're buying. All of this is being established as we speak, but there's going to be some early answers this year. But remember, just because one court or two courts answer it, frequently those answers are very different. So it just leads to more confusion. So you know, the high level for everybody is that there are no black and white answers, which is frequently the case in the law. You just need to really understand the landscape and then make your risk assessment of what is you know, the risk positive and mitigating it. Do you think that's what's holding back a lot of market demand? Because when you say it like that, I think, you know what, if I'm a very conservative investor, if I'm an institutional maybe, I'm going to wait and see what happens and how this sorts out. And then I'm going to put in the, the gunpowder, right? How, how much demand do you think is being held back just because there are unresolved issues on the legal side? Well, I think certainly the more established companies out there, you know, the big giants out there are more loath to enter marketplaces when there's uncertainty, when there's significant uncertainty. They definitely want to see how markets play out, how other big brands as an example. And then, but... The, that kind of uncertainty never scares away technology innovators. That's, that's kind of part of being a, a cast iron <laughs> stomach entrepreneur is that because somebody has to make up the rules of the game, you are putting yourself on the front lines, but that's part of being an entrepreneur. It's the risk reward thing. You just have to go about it really smartly with the best advisors you can, you can have to to mitigate and, and demonstrate, by the way, this is important too, demonstrate that you took these issues seriously, even if ultimately you found that you, you quote unquote got it wrong, the intent was honorable there. 
I, I went through that. We did an ICO years ago and what I hired a lot of counsel, spent a lot of time with, with attorneys discussing, but you're right. The, the major point was, did you attempt to do it right? Yeah. Right. Because there is no guy, clear guideline. There is no regulation. Did you cross every I and T that you could? Did yep. you make every attempt to comply with what you saw that was there? Because yeah, they can, they can write a law after the fact, but it's going to be hard for them to really, really go hard on you. If you did everything you could to comply with what the situation environment was when you wrote it or did it. And then later they put in some regulation that maybe you did something that was counter to that. Um, as long as they see, look, this person did everything they could have disclosed. They hired legal counsel, right? They spent time and effort to build this the right way. Yes, it was, it was found later to become whatever. Typically at that point, they either grandfather you in or give you a slap on the wrist and say, you know, go for it. But yeah, I think disclosure is always important. And like you said, the, 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 the idea that you're trying your best to comply in a reasonable in a reasonable way versus trying to do a rug pull or you know walk away with something yeah no exactly i mean look there's some examples with major cases right now where you have an artist um you have somebody who essentially duplicated board apes that's right <laughs> they just put a little something a little slight slight little disclaimer but sold these board apes that were were exact replicas otherwise with a slight little notice that the question is whether anybody really noticed that. And that person made a lot of money selling these things. And so what is the intent there? Like, you know, I think that you can infer that there was an attempt to make a lot of money trading off somebody else. And that's, you know, that hasn't been decided yet, but that's a case in front of the courts. I want to get back to one of your things though, where you're talking about like you, you know, what, whether the market and the uncertainty is holding back major companies, like the big guys too. Well, it's interesting just, I think it was this week or last week, Amazon, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world just announced a major NFT, or it's expected that it's going to launch a major NFT initiative this spring, where it's going to have NFT games and NFT trading cards itself. Um, so, and then you have Starbucks, you have you know, Nike has made over $200 million in just NFT sales so far. It's the leading fashion brand in that space. So the biggest brands in the world, are, are jumping in for sure. Warner Music Group, as you know, Warner is deep, deep, deep into experimenting. And I guess that would be, Steve, that would be my advice is that whenever there's a new technology, your point was, is it holding people back? Of course, the conservative players are always held back, but is that the right strategy? Is it not better to at least dip your toes in the water and learn about the space. Now, I think Warner's, uh, a lot of Exxon over there, I think their name is Exxon. Um, yeah, they're, 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 they're doing a number of initiatives. And I think that is the right way. There's other companies that are, like you said, holding back and being more conservative. But if you've got that type of resource base, those type of financial um, depths, an artist base with creatives that, you know, that they have a catalog that's 40, 50, 60 years old, probably even older. Um, why not try things, right? Just just do a short-term deal. See what happens. See what the result is. Dip your toe in a couple of pools and see what, what kind of results you're getting. And I wish more bigger media companies, I think they will. It's just there's this, this conflagration of crypto with an exchange, with you know blockchain. I, I, I think the average person still doesn't understand the differences between them. Yeah, oh, yeah. FTX thing go down and people think, oh, that's that's Bitcoin. I'm like, that's got nothing to do with Bitcoin, but it's all kind of lumped together as crypto or new tech or whatever. And people get sour on it because they're reading headlines from people that, you know, quite frankly, are, are serving the general public, but many times are, are not accurate. No, there's no question about it. There's the, I think that the vast majority of people believe that FTX equals NFTs, you know, and yes. <laughs> it's, just because they're they're web three enabled doesn't mean that they're the same. NFTs are fundamentally different, but it, it, the name itself, NFT, sounds so scary to so many people now. And ultimately what it is, it's a very simple concept. It's just, it's a direct connection. It's validated on the blockchain, but it's a, like a digital token, digital access, something that's an exclusive benefit that comes to those who are a purchaser of it. So 
You know, that gets into a whole bigger question of are these things real? Are these things valuable? And I think, you know, I write about it a lot, as you know, some are. And then, and I'm a huge believer in the power of NFTs and that we're in the early stages. Um, but some are just money grabs, of course, like any new technology. And so it's buyer beware, just get smart on these things. Listen, listen to smart people. What do you think? I had this conversation with an attorney the other day. I said, you know, why isn't fine art considered a security, right? If, if you could argue that people are buying, you know, a, a Liechtenstein, they're putting it on their yeah. wall. They love to look at it. Oh, and by the way, I sold it five years later for a $5 million profit. Yeah. And then there's guys that do nothing but trade art. If you can sell someone's work and advertise it to the public and make money from it and then trade in and trade out of it again and again, I, he couldn't tell me why it wasn't. I said, that's because I'm looking at, you know, the, the argument about NFTs being securities. And I said, if that's not considered a security, how do you, isn't that a slippery slope for everything else? Well, of course, you know, the, absolutely. There's so much historical when that comes to the, do, you know, does it make sense for this to be the case? Is it logically consistent with how we treat selling art via NFTs, fractional ownership of art, which could be considered a security. Some would think of it as a security. That question hasn't been answered yet, of course, but many would argue that it would be if you're selling a fractional ownership in a piece of fine art, which is expected if it's sold and people expect have a, have a, um, uh, a reasonable expectation of a rise in value, then the security test may be satisfied. But it's it is the same thing, like you said, Steve, like you do buy a Liechtenstein or a Picasso. Most people buy it to essentially it's like a tax haven. You yes. know, <laughs> I think anybody that spends over, I'm just going to say a hundred thousand dollars on a piece of art is looking. Like for stuff. Yeah, it's, it's there's there's some appreciation aspect going around your head. Otherwise, you know, if I really want to spend all my money on this sculpture and this piece of art because I love it, I'm never going to sell it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I think those things trade a lot. And I read the uh, that book on J Lo Rowe, the guy that did the Malaysian one um, MB debacle. Um, he was using what they call, I guess, tax-free transfer houses at international airports. There, there are areas where it's no man's land. So if you send something to to Denmark at the airport, there's a there's a tax warehouse. You could store goods there that are not in America. They're not in the Netherlands. They're non-taxable. And he was using that as a way to transfer value, right? So someone would buy a piece of art from him for $10 million and they, okay, ship it to the, to the warehouse, the tax-free warehouse in LA. So the guy technically has possession of it, but it's sitting in a no man's land warehouse. It's the non-taxable transaction. Yet the value is transferred without any type of you know record record of it or or it's crazy how fine art to me is is it's it's a nefarious world in many respects. There's no set value as you know right. Auctions are auctions, and one painting goes for X and another painting goes for Y. It's can it be outbid? Are people straw bidding? I, I don't know. It's it's a very nefarious world in some respects. Well, there's certainly in that kind of situation. There certainly can't be an argument made that it was bought for enjoying the art itself, <laughs> right? So that's going to create. That sounds pretty tax avoidant, security-like to me. To your point, for sure. So I think it all boils down to the concept of ownership, right? And I again have this discussion a lot. What do you really own? And I think there's a, a lack of understanding, especially from the retail consumer. Uh, even going back to music, right? People will buy a CD and they think, oh, I own that. I own those songs. Well, you really have the right to play them privately for your own personal consumption. Right. And that's about it, right? You, yep. can't, you can't modify that and edit it and put it out as your own. You can't, technically, you probably can't even resell it. I don't know where the law is there. You can't play it in a public venue for public consumption. Right. And there's so so really it's a very narrow right that you're getting when you pay the $18 or we did for for a CD. Yet the public assumes I own that song. I own that record. I own it. Right. And that's that's something I think that's coming up here with NFTs and 
and NBA Top Shots that you mentioned earlier, I, I know a lot of folks thought, oh, I, I own this video clip. You really don't. The NBA owns that video clip and they've licensed you a personal consumption license. Right. I haven't read the, the fine print on it, but you can't use it for commercial gain, right? You can't put it out there and, and make a film or a TV program based on this video because you don't even own those underlying rights. Well, this is where, again, there is mass confusion out there. So consumers frequently don't know what they're buying to your point, but though the person who's the creator, who's putting their work out there, making it available through an NFT, they get to define what the rights are that they are selling. So sometimes it may be the way you indicated, which is you're just having a right for personal use. And that's frequently the case, obviously, but it's not always the case. Like with the Bored Apes, it's an image, but your image that you're buying, you have, you have rights to commercialize your particular board ape. So you can make money on merchandise from your board ape. You can do things like that. You can create derivative works based on your particular board ape. And then you get into things like NFTs that will give you fractional ownership. And that gets into songs and things like that. So I love that area where you know, like you, you and I have been involved in catalog sales for a long time where you have big money that's out there billion, backed by billions of dollars, the private equity guys, the big guys smoking cigars in a boardroom, they're buying the big catalogs like Springsteen for $500 million, right? Yeah. But with NFTs, you're going to be able to bring the super fans, the fans together who can band together and buy a fractional share of Springsteen's catalog, let's say it was available, perhaps outbid a private equity guy because there's not only just an, uh, a hope to get an economic interest in it, but it's cool. Like there's an emotional interest of owning a piece of the boss, you know, like, right? And if it's an actual ownership, then not only are you making a fractional investment in like, you know, they um, just uh, in the catalog itself kind of blindly, you're able to actually monetize the fractional interest that you have, meaning that if those tracks, let's say, make $50 million a year and you have a 1% ownership stake in that, you get 1% of the royalties that are generated on an ongoing basis. So there's the whole flavor of what NFT ownership can be. It could be just a license for personal use. It could be kind of a, a, a somewhere in between or all the way where you actually own something but when you're owning something then it it really gets into the security question for sure 100 and i think there's going to have to be some kind of delineation for disclosing to the public what that is because you're right everybody's confused and, and back to board apes there is no transfer of copyright i looked into it they, there are limits on dort morale so you can't you can't use your board ape in a in a sex tape for example right, right. or or anything that's got negative connotations. So there are still, you don't really own all commercial uses. There are limits and caps placed on it. Um, for the most part, you can do what you want with it. But like you yeah. said, there, there are areas where you have to read down in the fine print to understand, oh, I thought I could make this, you know, a, let's just say a cannabis ad in a state that cannabis isn't legal. They may have an issue with that. You also don't own trademark to board apes. Right. Yeah, so of the of board apes themselves, you, you don't. And then you get into things like if you're creating a derivative work, let's say <laughs> you, you take your board ape and you put it into something. And then there's kind of this Venn diagram of overlap with somebody else's. And there's some kind of lawsuit that's out there right now. That's kind of about that, too. So mass confusion out there. It's very few attorneys or business people really know how to define these things. And then the consumers are really confused because the terms of all these different NFT drops are very different from one another. So like you're buying this NFT, the terms are gonna be different than this NFT. So no, nobody nobody reads anymore. And, no. and I, I remember looking at something, I think it was on Royal, but it was one of them. And they said, streaming rights, yeah. right? You get a fraction of streaming rights. I read deeper and it was master streaming rights, which as you know, are about half. And then it wasn't just master streaming rights, it was Spotify master streaming yeah. rights, which means you're now down to here. But someone that read streaming rights thinks, oh, anytime I hear it anywhere streamed, I'm getting paid. And that's really not what you're buying. And I don't know how to, they could disclose all those things. I'm sure they did because I read them. 
but the average consumer doesn't even know what they're reading, right? If they read that a master right was different than a publishing right or a songwriter right, they don't know what that is. They have no idea. And this gets into, you know, and I'm counseling different people right now about things like there's an upcoming NFT drop. And yes, there's a bunch of stuff in terms of service, of course, you know, got it covered, but these terms of service are pages and pages long. And, and it's really up to the consumer to, to read those, do they or do they not? So the question becomes part of the give and take is, okay, let's think of that reality and look at helping the consumer really understand the basics and putting that into the actual page itself, the like the page where you buy, like the marketing materials themselves. So it's front and center, some of the bullet points that calling it out so that there's less confusion and being the white knight. And I think there's a, you know, that that's part of just overall good customer relations, treating people well that way. And, um, and, and so I think there's gonna, like those kinds of things from a marketing perspective, how you sell this thing, both in terms of promoting it, um, that all of those aspects, like promoting it, marketing it, landing pages, things like that, that all needs to be coordinated through legal business and everything. And that probably is coordinated in 3% of the case cases. And you start touching on something I thought led into AI when you're talking about that overlap, right? Yeah. So there's certain rights here, certain rights over there. It's being overlapped in a situation. And, and now that we see these engines like ChatGPT and um, some of the other AI engines, which literally are scraping copyrighted materials yep. to come up with their own solution. Um, you know, on the on the visual side, I, I know um, Getty Images has something going on there yep. because you've got, you know, the OpenAI uh, DALI platform that will create an image from something but it's not drawing an image out of thin air. It's looking at a number of triggers that you put in to prompt it. And it draws from existing imagery to create a new image, which I guess could be called a derivative work, but a derivative work is protected by copyright, right? Well, no, derivative works are, um, if it's a derivative work, then there needs to be a license from the original owner. That's but what I mean. Yeah, the question is whether it's a fair use because it's such a micro transgression and that's in a visual case it's it's pretty interesting i don't know if it is or isn't different than in the textual but let's just take up you know you and i like a song we're inspired by it and so we like the melody and we do our own little twist on it which is done in the music business all the time right without copyright infringement. i mean these are gray areas so sometimes there's lawsuits and not most of the time, there's not an intention to copy. You're just kind of inspired. Like artists from the beginnings of time have been inspired by other artists. And so they um, reimagine it, create something new, right? So, and that's not copyright infringement if it, unless it's blatant. And, and intention really matters there. So then you get into what we're talking about with AI and scraping, where what most typically with machine learning it's taking, you know, all this, like these microtransgressions, but it's not creating something that's, it's not replicating something precisely. It's reimagining it into something novel, novel, but so is that different or isn't it different? And that's the fundamental question. Like I right now, Steve, I, I just finished my latest article that's going to be going out next week. And it's about these particular issues and the, and I don't know how I come out on it. I do come out on the like the the higher philosophical questions about what the AI does to creativity itself and whether you know whether AI um, ultimately devalues human creative works and because just the sheer volume that it can pump out there. Like let's let's take marketing. You're an artist, Steve. Let's say your let's say your career is spent creating visual work for commercials or for advertisements or for, you know, whatever it may be. Well, you know, you cost, let's say $75,000, $80,000, $120,000 a year. And you charge out to your client, your consulting firm or whatever, costs a lot of money. If you can have chat GPT or your, it's AI brethren come out here and just work 24 seven without getting paid, 
creating iteration upon iteration upon iteration, what is that going to do to that marketing job, right? So that's one end of it. But then I was thinking, and I was writing about this, is that what did digital animation do to hand-drawn animation? It put hand-drawn animation largely out of work, definitely. So lots of jobs were lost in that old-fashioned way, but it created a new entire ecosystem of digital animation, most um, famously created by Pixar, right? Sure. And so some would argue that that, that technology enabled some of the mundane tasks to be stripped away so that there'd be more human focus on the story itself. And Pixar is famous for having great, you know, storytelling and all that. So I think there's an analogy there, but nonetheless, I think that AI is still at a vastly different level than when it comes to a transformation like digital to that particular case as an example. Yeah, so, I, I think, by the way, one last point on that, which I think is just fascinating. So the US Copyright Office has not, so far, has not granted any copyrights to any purely AI created work because there's no human element to it. And that's, that's where it's coming out right now. But the question ultimately becomes, is that logical? Is that the way it's going to stay? The courts are grappling with this all right now too. So anyhow. I I saw that because you have to feed the AI some guidance, right? It's not just going to shoot a song out for you. It wants, you have to give it some parameters and that's the human intervention. It could also be argued that the humans that program the AI are some form of human inter intervention. But I look at this in, in way back, go to, go to a keyboard, right? If you pick up a Yamaha keyboard and put in, I don't know, program 101 and hit a C, typically that is a sample. Right. Typically, that is coming from a generated tone. And now you can obviously put sample packs in. So um, I'm, a, I'm a drummer and you could you could put in different drum kits. Those are samples of actual drum kits. You could argue, hey, you know, the original drummer and Josh Freeze is a friend of mine did this. Apple em em employed him to program the some of the drum fills on GarageBand. Right. They paid him one time, worked for hire, said, give us you know, 30 minutes of fills and flams and whatever, and just sent them a whole thing. He now, I'm sure those fills and flams and cymbal hits are used probably in millions of songs. He doesn't benefit any further than that, that initial flat payment. But the question is, did he enable the creator to get beyond, I don't want to say drumming's all menial, but, uh, you know, having to set up a drum kit, having to tune it, having to set up a microphone, having to record it just to get that kick drum beat that you could get on GarageBand in about five seconds with your finger. So you're, you're saying, you know, there's arpeggiators, there's certain loops that people are now using. Producers use loops all day long, right? That is also a shortcut to getting away from having to program each note of the loop or arpeggio to get there. And same thing. Is it, is it infringing on the creativity of someone that, that, that would write that arpeggio and play it? Sure. But does it also give the artist a little higher view, a 30,000 foot view and say, my song should be like this, this, and this? Yeah, I don't play bass. How am I going to deal with that, right? Oh, I, I can use a MIDI bass sample. Boom, boom, boom. And I got a bass line. So it is a tool. The question I think you're, you're, you're back to, you know, is, is it, what's the intent? The blurred lines thing is, I, it's a very scary case. I, to me, there was no sample, right? There was no use of the master recording. This is the, this is the uh, Robin Thicke thing. Um, yet the jury found them liable. They said, this is, a, this is an interpretation of the song, but because I guess the intent, um, you're gonna have to pay some of your earnings out to Marvin Gaye's estate because it is so close to what this song sounds like, or the vibe is similar, yeah. that we're finding that we're going to find for the plaintiff that you infringed, which that was, I was like, wow. So you don't even have to use the recording. If you even play something that sounds like it or has the vibe of that, that's an infringement. Yeah. I'm, and uh, I know and this is all gray. It's all so subjective. And that's a case where you have a, a human jury and they can point to a particular song, right? And yeah. so at least there can be a judgment made, but it's, 
it's just listening to songs, right? And then it gets into intent. Then you can put the, the songwriter on the stand and say, what were you really intending here? Did you ever hear that song? And were you inspired by it? Things like that. But when you're talking about AI and focusing on micro transgressions for hundreds, thousands, you know, millions of songs, how the hell are you going to be able to identify which infringement so you know what what song or what element of a song or you know whatever it may be because it's such a micro piece of it has been infringed and so like how do you set up a system that can compensate artists in that case where ai is being trained on copyright work and the only thing i can think of is something that's pro like in the music business where you know you have songs that are always playing in bars, restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. And there's no way you can historically identify who's playing what at what, because there's millions of places around the world that are playing music. So uh, performing rights organizations were created to like estimate these things. They would go around establish, but it's all estimates. And then they feed it into some system that's extremely imperfect. So the only thing I can think of is something something along those lines. But I, I want to get back to your one point also about the studio and and now you can press a button and create your drum things and you can create, you know, obviously with GarageBand for years now, you've been able to, as an artist, create really good stuff. You don't need to be in a studio. It's better to be in a studio, but you don't need to be in a studio. So that's one small case where it's not only the infringement thing, but it gets into the human elements of has that reduced dependence upon studios and studio technicians, which then lost jobs came from it. And so all of these things, like technology always does that, where we know that. We, we, we look at manufacturing, robotics came into manufacturing and Look what happened to Detroit. You know, factories were shut down, tremendous pain and suffering. These people weren't, you know, people who were in the factory jobs weren't retrained. And so we led to a lot of pain and suffering. So sim I, I think that that's kind of an analogy of what AI is going to be doing to many jobs where absolutely there will be significant replacement. So looking at how everybody, all of us can not, be afraid of it rather than just stoically look at this is what's happening, um, how we can leverage it and also prepare ourselves for that kind of future so that we can have a piece of it. And maybe like in digital animation, create things that weren't done before. And if you don't mind me ruminating one more time, like I was at a really interesting panel at AILA a couple of weeks ago and there were like 300 people there. And the room was buzzing because obviously chat GBT, AI, like, and this was all about creativity in the business. One of the benefits of AI, kind of like with GarageBand, is that if I have an idea and I think it's a damn good idea, like for a painting or for what, you know, a visual piece of art, but I'm not a visual artist. You know, I'm not, I'm not trained that way. But now I have the tools through AI where I can feed it my thoughts and something can be created from that that I otherwise would not have been able to do. So in a sense, just like GarageBand, it's empowering, it's democratizing creativity, some would say too. It's a tool, right? And it makes, like you said, it opens up that world to someone who's not a classically trained musician or recording artist or recording engineer. I mean, you know, most people don't know how to record a drum kit, but now I can get professionally recorded drums for free. And my friend Joe Rogers has a company called Work Done, and he's doing AI in the workplace. And one of his main concerns was, how does this, what are the optics, right? When you, when you go in and say, this, this, basically it learns how people do their work. And, and an insurance adjuster is, is one of the examples where, how does this person look at this claim? How do they come up with, the, with their solution, right? And, and so the way he couched it was, we could, we could uh, say you have 20 adjusters, they can find the best adjuster, right? The person that seems to get the job done more, most efficiently, have the best results because they're looking at 20 different adjusters. They're evaluating all these metrics and they go, this person does this really well. But what they can do is take that person's model and then introduce that to you know, the other 19 adjusters and say, hey, 
if you use these techniques that this person's using, your job will improve and maybe you'll make more money. So it's a way to train even humans to do what they do better, right? So it's, it's a weird slippery slope because you're right. People think, oh, a robot's gonna come in and do my job. That may happen, but a robot could also come in and help you do your job better to make you more money. Or like you mentioned, give you another avenue of income that maybe you're not a guitar player, but you can now record amazing guitar stuff through an AI engine because you can hear it. You, you, can, you can imagine what it is, even though you can't physically accomplish it. Now you can with this software tool. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, you know, even what we're doing right now, over time, you've created several episodes that will continue on. So you've created a certain voice for yourself. You'll have ideas for future episodes and that can be trained. You can feed in the topics, train in um, through your past episodes, the, your voice, not only your actual voice, but your voice in terms of just your thought, thinking, et cetera, that will be, you will be able to efficiently create more and more. Your output will be greater than it otherwise would have been. Now, it's not necessarily like that will be perfect, but you might be able to use other AI tools to dial it in, things like that. But it's already pretty damn good for the written word. So um, through just ChatGPT, you know, I'm a regular writer. It takes a long time to do my weekly columns. It takes a long time. Um, but I've I've written so much in the past. So if I'm able to, if ChatGPT or some other AI can access all my past writing, it definitely sees patterns in the way I do things. So I can put in my topics and out will come an initial draft that's pretty damn good. Then it's a question like it could be tweaked, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of the mundane, again, will be, it doesn't mean that the creativity is gone. It will, sometimes it will be, but Many times it will be more like, okay, you maybe arguably you have a chance to have more creative output than you otherwise would have had. More of your thoughts will actually hit the mark because you haven't been bogged down in, in writing and writing the same paragraph for two hours. I said this the other day. It's, it's like in, in a, a painter, right? Buying the paintbrushes, stretching the canvas, mixing the paint. That's all tasks that are necessary to create that art but it's not the creative artist part, right? That's, those, are the, those are the things that I think technology and tools like this can alleviate. So if you spend you know, one-tenth of your time doing the, the, the paint menial stuff, now that one-tenth is, is focused on creativity, which gives you much more efficient workflow. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So um, I, I see, just like with anything, you see positivity that comes with it. And, um, but I think it's up to the, the humans to, at least I, I guess I'm a romantic this way. I still believe that the soul, there's something with the soul that can't be replicated um, that reaches a connection that a, machines can't. Now, I heard a very interesting podcast about that with Malcolm Gladwell interviewing Rick Rubin about creativity because Rick Rubin just published a book. I forgot what it's called. I think it's called like the creative act. And it's not just about music creativity. It's about painting, you know, your house. It's about doing your job. It's about anything. And he has a great line. He says that when he's working with an artist, a musical artist, he knows the, the song isn't, the recording is a done, is not done. It's not perfect when it has five mistakes. He says it's perfect when it has eight mistakes. You know, the, the, so his point there is that what makes things human is that we're fallible. There are flaws, there are mistakes, there are things like that. And so in the creative art, there's something different, I believe, than like when you're doing, you know, my brother's a pathologist. If you're studying pathology and you're looking at slides all day and you're trying to diagnose whether that's cancerous, that particular thing, then that's not, that's not really creativity as much. I mean, somebody would say it would be if you don't have millions and millions of cases to be able to like sift through instantaneously like AI can. Right? Sure. So, but these are philosophical, it gets into philosophy as well. 
hundred percent. Rick's the right person for that. Cause I, I don't know if you know what quantizing is right. But when, when digital recording came out, Pro Tools, Ableton, all that stuff, it originally just put everything, you know, it was just a recorder. And then they came up with this thing called quantizing, which allowed you, everything to be corrected. And, and again, as, as a drummer, you know, things are messy sometimes. There's no such thing as, as somebody that plays perfect timing every single time. Although there are some players that are good. Yeah. But the argument was that if, it's, if, the, if the machine corrects everything, you would listen to that and think that that's not human, right? So many, what they did after that was they introduced an error. Right? Uh, so yeah, you, yeah, yeah. put in a 1% error in the quantizing. So everything wasn't exactly to a grid. It moved and, and moved a little back and forth so that your impression was that there was a human involved. And, and I, I've seen this with video too. There's a lot of uh, remote cameras that used to be fixed, right? And they just go cut, 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 cut. And they realized if you just move the camera a little bit, like it moves just, you know, like, I don't know, an inch, two inches, somehow in your mind, and it's part of the, 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 the brain, um, you, you sense that there's a camera person that's real, right? It's not just a machine that someone's actually actively recording this. It's a weird concept. It's been a lot of shows like The Office and a lot of those shows where they had yeah. hand, a lot of handheld stuff. It was newsy and people start to go, oh, that means it's real. Instead of studio shots where it's just click, 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 that handheld thing. And a lot of times it was still a camera on a, on a robot, but it was moving enough that you assume there was a human involved in it. So very yeah. interesting. No, absolutely. And, and again, this gets into uh, the column, like I said, that I'm writing right now, which is um, devaluing art, that fundamental question, just by the magnitude the sheer volume that's going to be able to be pumped out and based on and create some really beautiful beautiful works beautiful but there will always be a market for blood sweat and tears for limited volume so like let's say you're an artist steve which i'm sure you are you're a multi-talented guy but let's say you're a painter in your lifetime you can only paint x amount of paintings and so even if a machine replicates those paintings in its way still the the world out there there's going to be a an audience that will value the human limited number in a different way and will put a price tag on it even if it looks the same it will treat it differently a, a segment of the market will because of the scarcity involved in it and the blood, sweat, and tears that are involved in it. And this isn't a perfect analogy, but there's, it's kind of, uh, bear with me on this one. There is an appreciation for, as our world gets more and more automated and technical, there's this counter, this, this humanistic counter or movement, which is a good one, which I encourage, which is to think, kind of harken back to the emotion, the soul of it all. And so that's one of the reasons why like vinyl has made a comeback. Now, vinyl is still technology. It's still <laughs> technology, but it's, it's, not in the, it's not to the nth degree. And there's something that many artists, as you know, swear by that there is a feel, there's a sound that can't be replicated. It's a, there's something to it that is more humanistic to it. And then like, then you really start thinking about why music festivals, why, why experiential entertainment is, continues to explode and will never end because humans have this human need to interact with each other and be out there. And that's enough, that can't be replicated until we are divorced from our human bodies. No, you're, you're right. And I see it with kids. I see kids watching performers. And they're so attuned to getting something on a screen or listening to something in AirPods and they go and they see somebody playing guitar and they're almost, in, or they are in awe. They're, they're literally going, he's playing that? That's that experience. You and I probably saw many, many more live performances than kids growing up today, right? There's it's, they're just not, not enough of them and the, the, the screen time dominates. So when they see someone doing it for real, it's not someone hitting a you know a dj hitting a laptop and saying there's the loop it's a guy that's got talent or a woman that's got talent playing something that's amazing 
it always awes human beings, right? It doesn't matter what culture you're from, how old you are. You see someone that's got extraordinary talent playing an instrument, you have to stop and watch. It, it, it is something that I think is in our culture and, and human existence that we appreciate someone doing something exceptional that maybe touches us. And that's, that's what you're saying. The emotional part of this is always going to have a high value. Um, and that's why we, we do pay for, we can listen to Taylor Swift all day long for $9.99 a month on Spotify or whatever it is, these, you know, endlessly. But there's still this rabid need to go to Taylor Swift concerts and, and you saw, you know, what happens with that. This frenzy around the world because being there live is just a shared experience. It's, it, it's much more lasting because of that. You were in this physical environment with other people doing this transient thing. That experience will never be the same for anybody, right? It's that moment in time and that stays with you. And that's the beauty of um, you know, human interactivity that AI is never going to be able to replicate. I'm wondering what that looks like in the metaverse, right? Because I think at some point you could get close there will be some type of record of it, a badge or something. So you get an NFT ticket to go in. Yep. You can, one of the big things with Metaverse is it's community, right? You can build your community, bring your friends, family by the tens or hundreds, if you like, together to experience something. It is detached. You're, you're, you might be in your room or your car or somewhere, but the idea that your avatar is interacting with other people that you know in real life, but they also have an avatar and those people are in an experience together. I think, you know, we're seeing on the decentralized platforms, especially they're still blocky and kind of 8-bit and they're just, you know, there's not a lot of realism there. Whereas on the gaming platforms, it's hard to tell sometimes if you're watching, like I'll come in and go, is that a game or is that oh, like yeah. film? It's, it's so close. I think there's gonna be a transition where the experiences that people are calling metaverse and Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, legless metaverses, it's kind of disembodied. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it's going to morph into more of a Madden sports analogy because that the realism of that game. And when it gets to that point, you're going to look across and see your brother or your girlfriend or whatever. And, and you're going to feel like you are pretty close to being with them, not exactly being there, but the next best thing. And in people, in, in situations where people are in markets that, that maybe aren't as financially developed, um, and they, they maybe can never get to Hollywood, right? And they want to go see a show in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with that, right? What's wrong with saying, hey, I got to go see a show at the Roxy, even though I'm in Ethiopia and I would probably never have the resources to, to get there. But now I'm experiencing it with my friends. The artist is interacting with us in almost a photorealistic environment. That's it's pretty amazing. Oh, no, there's no question. That's Ready Player One. And that's... And we are in such the early days of metaverse and stuff. And you're right, games are the metaverse already. You know, the games are, games are, they're the most immersive thing and it's 2D for the most part. But there's no doubt that it will be quite seamless. Um, the question is whether there's the, the physical environment still be, will be a differential. I gotta believe that it will be, but it doesn't mean that it's one or the other. To your point, like from a creative standpoint, from an artist standpoint, you can't dig your, you can't put your head in the sand. Rather, you think of, okay, how can I harness whatever technology it is to create new experiences? Like thinking of it as a new canvas on which to paint essentially. And then being able to, like in your example, to reach all these people who otherwise wouldn't go to your show or couldn't go to your show, couldn't pay for it. They get to be part of it. That's a real significant opportunity. So I agree with you that, um, there's understandable in all of this stuff, fear, and then there's acceptance. And then there's like, okay, what do we do with it? And it's been from the beginnings of time. It's always been like that because technology improved, but the, you know, the pace of it, the pace of it is just so fast and accelerates over like logarithmically as we know. Um, and then it gets into like, if you're a creator or an artist, how do you, you know, you and I, try to keep up to date with business, legal issues, things like that. And we both do podcasts, right? So we're creators. But if you're like um, a singer songwriter, how can you, um, how can you try to keep up with all this? 
I don't have the answer other than the fact is that if you want to, if you want to not just create art, but you want to have an audience for it. And if you want to then have a career with it, you have to find a way to keep up with this stuff because you got to be an entrepreneur and it's a much different world than it was then, you know, let's say 20 years ago as an artist. Now you have to really be proactive to do it, but there's a lot of things you can do today that you couldn't do back then. So there's a lot of noise. And, and just to touch on the monetization thing for a second, it's, I do believe most distribution now is digital, right? Whether it's on a handheld device, laptop, home stereo, business, whatever, that's trackable, right? And when you say the AI, the AI knows what it's scraping, right? It's not an anonymous scrape. It knows it went here, here, here. It's doing it thousands of times per second, but it knows where it's getting those sources. So to me, the smart contract is where the value is. And if artists can say, look, that's my baseline. It's got a smart contract embedded with it. I don't care, right? That Those licensing choke points now that exist where oh, I don't have a publisher, I don't have a manager. I don't have... No, 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 no. Anybody that uses that baseline, whether it's a YouTube video, a podcast, another song in a game, you will be paid some fractional piece of whatever that earning would be directly. That's yeah. to me the holy grail in the music side of things and probably for written content and any other kind of content where you know that when you put it out there, it's gonna be tracked and payable to you. And you don't even know where it's gonna be used. Don't even care. The more, the better, obviously, but that little chunk of remuneration that comes to you from a game or from a TV show or from a play in a bar, all that stuff is gonna come back because you put more stuff out. And I think that's, we're getting close all, to that. And it's all trackable on the blockchain. 100%. Yeah. No, I, that is the only way that makes sense from, and absolutely, it's a, it's a huge opportunity. I agree with you. Now, there are going to be certain, and it's going to be, it will be a permission-based sort of thing, right? And so if you're an artist and you don't want anybody to, because your art is pure to you, right? Then your, your art is unscrapable, essentially. It's a system sure. that, that you, perhaps it's a voluntary, you have to voluntarily enable your art or your creative work or whatever it may be to be scrapable by AI, you know, through blockchain technology. So it is trackable in the way that you do it. I think that's actually a really interesting um, scenario. So it's like an opt-in system from the creator standpoint. It's an opt-in or opt-out, but it gives like you that, that choice, right? And, and the idea that you can do that selectively and the idea that you have control of that but also the idea that anybody then can monetize again without these gatekeepers that have yeah. been limiting right if, if yeah. some kid's a great guitar player in kansas city doesn't have a record deal doesn't have a public doesn't know anybody he's probably not going to ever be able to monetize his work but now that it's put up and it, it gets on spotify and spotify again knows where when and who played that it can assign a value to it it knows who the rights holders are right or, or deals with the pro it, the PRO knows it can now push through that payment almost in real time. All that technology, as you know, is there. It's just sometimes the wheels don't work together and there's powers in the middle that don't want things to pay so quickly. Um, and the metadata is not exactly clean. So there are issues with, with existing and, and prior music and creations. But I think once that, once you put clean data into a blockchain and you allow it to be tracked, that again, the, the creator opts in or opts out, I can't see why anybody would opt out because when they start to see people supporting themselves in third world countries from creativity that no one's ever tapped into before, they're going to go, yeah. what am I missing out on? Right. And if you are an influencer, you have the ability to even pump up the usage even more, you're going to make more money from it. Well, yeah, I, I think that's, um, here's an analogy to that. And I, I actually love that. I took some notes on that because I think that's probably the best system possible. There's, um, I forgot the name of it, but there are a number of these companies that essentially it's a library of all these tr tracks or sonics from composers, right? And so now it's essentially you pay a subscription if you're a filmmaker or whatever, and you have access to all these songs and you don't have to worry about any licensing. It's just a bank. It's a bank yep. of songs. And if your track is used, you're paid. And so like all these composers, now they have a one place where they can put all their stuff and they don't have to worry about it. 
that they're happy if it's used because they get paid. Meanwhile, if you're the one who licenses it, you don't have to worry about the complexity of the music stuff. You have this solution. Similarly, yep. I think the best possible scenario is, and that makes total sense to me, is that if you're an AI and you're creating a system that creates whatever new art or new works or whatever it may be, there's an opt-in system, like you said. So there, the art that it's being trained upon is only that limited universe of art that's been um, permitted to come in and to be trained upon, right? So artists opt in to say, yeah, I'll play ball here because if, and then it's all tracked on the blockchain. And so if it's utilized, then I'm gonna get paid. And that's a beautiful thing. That makes sense to me. And that gets rid of the copyright issue, right? Now you've, totally. you've, you've, you've said there's permission. You have totally. permission to use this. And in return for that permission, I have the ability to monetize, right? And I think, again, most people are going to say yes, unless it's something that's very personal to them. And, and they would probably never put it out to distributor anyway. But yeah. anybody that's trying to build an audience, most artists are trying to share their emotional basis for their work. You know, whether you're a writer, painter, musician, you want to put that stuff out there. The ability to have it distributed globally without constraints and the ability to monetize on it in a fair and equitable system where, hey, it got played five times, you get five X. It got played five million times, you get five million X, right? Once we can establish a reference data for the value of it, then this just opens the gates and no one's afraid to license, no one's afraid to use anything. It's, I, I, you know, when people are making YouTube videos, they have to be conscious of what songs are putting on there. And kids don't know this, kids go, oh, it's my favorite song, I'm putting it on, it's a Drake song, boom can't use a Drake song in your music video. Now, now you've got with you know the, the creative, uh, the DCMA, where, where you can actually just take the master side of it and they pay the copyright holder, which is also a nice solution. Yeah. But imagine being unconstricted, right? You're a filmmaker and you say, I can use any songs I want. Yeah. I, I, I did, a, I was a soundtrack supervisor once and it was the, the budgetary constrictions really hindered what I thought was the creativity of the filmmakers and the film itself. They were so worried about that, right? But now you could say, okay, we're gonna use this song. If the film tanks and no one sees it, we pay almost nothing, right? If the film's a blockbuster, everybody gets paid. Yeah. That system will open up creativity like a floodgate. I mean, it's gonna allow people to not be constricted by how much something is, or can I use this legally or not? You're just going to take the whole palette of colors out there and say, I want this, 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 and think about how rich that creation is going to be when you can, you can, you can encompass everything that you envision in your head without regard to budget or how to pay or how to get it licensed or cleared. And that day will come. I don't think, I don't think we're even close to it, but the technology is there right now. And yeah, I, no question. And when you were talking about gatekeepers, it's, it's in Hollywood, in music, you know, you have managers, you have agents who you may have the greatest script in the world and, uh, and say, I want this, I want, I would love this actor to take a look at this script, but the agent says, nah, you know, they're the ones who are the gatekeeper. And so the artist never, or the actor never sees it. And the actor may have loved that script, right? They of may have, course. and then in the music side, it's the same thing. Imagine Kate Bush's song running up that hill where music managers most frequently say, I'm only gonna even think about this for my client if you give me a million dollars. Yes. Because they don't think about the bigger picture. The bigger picture was look at what running up that hill in um, Stranger Things did to Kate Bush, all of her music. It reinvigorated everything. And But the gatekeepers frequently don't look at these things. And so instead, if the artist has an opt-in system and just allows their work to be used and get paid for it, and there can be, it doesn't mean that without constraints, there could be an opt-in system where every time there's an interest in your song, it immediately goes to the artist away from the gatekeeper and the artist can say, yes, no, I won't allow this, you know, something like that. Sure. that but I love it. when you're talking about AI and AI creativity, I think that system of having this subset of artists who are scrapable is the way to go. And it's funny because when I was at this AILA event uh, a couple of weeks ago that I was mentioning, and it was all about entertainment and creativity and all that, they had 16 AI artists who were showcasing their work. One of the companies, and the name escapes me, was doing precisely that. 
it was creating AI work from a limited group of artists who opted in with their art for precisely that reason. And you just gave me an idea for my next column, which is gonna be about the solution or what we're talking about. And it will be exactly what we're saying. Opt in and then blockchain enabled payments and tracking kind of like metadata. And then using this one company as an example of that. That to me seems like the right direction, the right way of thinking about things. Where it's the holy grail and everybody gets what, what value they put in. And again, if, if your project tanks, no harm, no foul, right? Your project's a blockbuster, everybody, ma everybody makes out. This is, this is good stuff, good stuff. <laughs> well, it's good to talk to you, Peter. We should have more of these conversations either on or off podcasts. But, no, absolutely, uh, I, I love it. I love it. I really enjoyed being on your show. I appreciate you coming on and we will touch base very soon. Sounds good. Good to see All you, right. Steve. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. Bye. Bye.